It was forecasted to be the war to end all wars, World War I. Humanity had fought each other since the beginning of humanity. You could make an argument that the First World War really was Cain versus Abel. Four people we know of alive at that time, and 25% of them already died in that one war. World War I introduced new technologies into battle that spread around the globe. Never had the earth been so connected, and yet never had the earth been so divided. After all the effort, all the bloodshed, an entire generation of lives lost to the fight, the Allies won World War I. It came at a great cost. Millions of soldiers died in the raging battles. Military action, disease, hunger, and other associated causes reaped the lives of millions of civilians. It's been rumored that the war unsurprisingly ended with a bold promise and proclamation, never again. This was the war to end all wars. Now let's play the blame game. The Allies lay the blame firmly at the feet of Germany for causing World War I. So in order to avoid history repeating itself, the Allies vowed to sufficiently punish Germany. Nobody would have thought it unmerciful or unjust to harshly judge Germany for all the atrocities they had committed and the huge death toll that World War I took on humanity. In fact, many would have deemed it a gross and negligent betrayal of justice not to pour out their wrath on Germany. And so nations enacted policies to severely punish Germany and its citizens for this great war. Germany became a shell of its former self. Its economic power and might disappeared, transforming into poverty and a sickening weakness. Observers deemed such punishment well-deserved and perhaps not even harsh enough. Surely these measures, no matter how extreme, would save the planet from another world war, especially from a defanged Germany. But for those of us who have lived past World War I, no, they could not have been more wrong. The seeds of judgment sowed the seeds for the next World War, World War II. The people of Germany lived in hunger and poverty. Most Germans used their paper money as fuel to keep themselves warm since their currency had really no buying power. In their desperation, they looked for a leader. At this point, nearly anyone would do, and Adolf Hitler rose to power. Hitler brought Germany back from the brink, and then he took the entire world beyond the brink of disaster and over the edge into the most vicious fighting and atrocious treatment of humans ever imagined. World War II not only featured bloody battles, but the Holocaust claimed the lives of around 6 million Jews, and Germany murdered 5 million POWs. And yet, as in World War I, the Allies won again. But can such horrific losses truly be considered a win? How's today's world different due to the deaths of so many innocents? Could mercy have prevented World War II? Had the rest of the world shown mercy to Germany, is it possible we could have avoided catastrophe? Certainly Germany deserved judgment for their role in World War I, but could it be the world went too far? If every action has an equal and opposite reaction, then brutal punishment might also lead to brutal action. But if we act peacefully and mercifully, perhaps we can reap a better harvest of peace and righteousness. And we're going to hear a story about mercy and judgment right after this. Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word, further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment 
to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. Good day to you, God's Word for Life listeners. I hope you're having a wonderful 2024. We're already two weeks in. Hopefully those resolutions are still holding up. I drove by a gym today, not to it, but by it, <laughs> and noticed there were a lot of cars in the parking lot. I thought, I need to drive by that place in April and just count the cars again and, <laughs> and just see how many are still holding out since January. But resolutions don't always do so great, but this is a great resolution that every day and every week we will dive into the Word of God and see what God has to say to us. And that's why we're here on this God's Word for Life Companion podcast. My name is LJ Harry. I'm your host, and we are looking at an episode called Three Days in the Deep. It's the series, The Faithfulness of God. And this stems from the lesson, the God's Word for Life lesson, dated January 14th, 2024, and it is called Three Days in the Deep. It's from the story of Jonah and the minor prophets. Jonah 4, verse 4, the Lord asked Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry? Well, what's Jonah angry about? Well, let me tell you that story. It all started because of a big, huge, massive city named Nineveh in the ancient world. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. If you've read your Bible deep into the Old Testament, you'll notice that Assyria was one of Israel's enemies, and they were brutal. The name Nineveh likely meant house of the goddess, not exactly a friendly place to these one God, Jehovah-worshipping Israelites. The leaders of the Assyrian Empire feature a who's who of ancient history. Let's see if these names ring any bells. Hammurabi, known for his famous code. Shalmaneser, he built walls, built a palace, built a temple. Tiglath-Pileser, he helped strengthen Assyrian power. Thanks to world history and Sunday school, I'm three for three on those names. But later, the city and Assyrian dominance became greater with the rise of the Neo-Assyrian Empire beginning around 911 B.C. Nineveh featured palaces, temples, paintings, gardens, all adding to its splendor. In fact, the city included the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But despite Nineveh's wonders, the prophet Jonah hated the city of Nineveh. We can date Jonah to around the 8th century B.C., Events in his time and beyond fueled the flames of animosity against the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire greatly affected the politics in the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. The Syrians and the northern kingdom of Israel formed an alliance to defeat the Assyrians. This is going to get very confusing. There were the Syrians, capital city Damascus, and the Assyrians, capital city Nineveh, and they fought each other. And eventually, the Assyrians defeated that alliance of Syria and Israel. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians destroyed the capital city of Israel, Samaria, and deported the Israelites. Some of these northerners may have seen the coming destruction of their kingdom and traveled over to Judah, which was south of Israel. But they were not safe from the Assyrians' threats during the days of King Hezekiah. The kings rebelled against the Assyrians and nearly lost it all. But miraculously, the Lord saved Jerusalem. The city and the king escaped a horrible fate. The pages of history feature the cries of Assyrian victims, and they run red with their blood. The Assyrians tortured and punished their victims in some of the most cruel ways possible. Assyrian cruelty knew no bounds. Jonah wasn't the only person who hated the Assyrians. Near the end of the Assyrian Empire, numerous subjects revolted against Assyria. 
those revolts went far beyond just trying to be free. They wanted to judge and punish the Assyrians. They wanted the Assyrians to pay for their brutality. So here's our first question. What does the term roots of hatred mean, and how do we avoid it? When we take a look at the Assyrians, many of us living thousands of years beyond their day would look at them and say, somebody needs to do something about Assyria. And yet, the Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Typically, whenever humans try to enact God's justice, we go too far or not far enough. We really do need to let God be the judge and just pray for God to do what's right. Now, history makes the Assyrians seem completely irredeemable due to their ruthlessness and brutality. God often punished the wicked for going too far, so Jonah likely had every reason to believe God was going to give them what they were due, a more than justified, well-deserved judgment. But God felt something for Assyria besides anger. He recognized their desperate need of him, and he felt mercy. We often think of God reaching out for just one lost person, and thank God he does, but God also wants to redeem and bring salvation, not just to individuals, but to entire towns, cities, countries, even regions of the world. God has a redemptive plan that can challenge our human ideas about justice. We might see the punishment of the Lord as righteous. If a city behaves wickedly, then we feel like justice is justified. Go get them, God. Maybe we prayed some of those imprecatory prayers in the book of Psalms. God, kick out their teeth. Destroy them. And yet, in that wholesale destruction... Many innocents get caught up in the calamity. Wars, natural disasters, other problems, they come at a heavy price. We might wonder why God would go to such lengths to save a wicked city like Nineveh and an evil empire like the Assyrians. Maybe the Lord chose to show mercy, to teach us a lesson. We all make mistakes. Sadly, sometimes our own sin seems so great that we think we have gone far beyond the reach of even God's love. But thankfully, Nothing could be further from true. Our own disappointment in ourselves and the voices of judgmental people as well as the enemy of our soul probably will try to make us feel like we can never get our way back to God. We might believe we have gone too far and we ourselves are too far gone, but if the Lord can love a terrible city like Nineveh and show them grace, compassion, mercy to everyone there despite their sins, God's love truly has no limit. And thank God for it. Here's another question. What are some ways God has shown limitless love to you? Jonah knew all about the love and mercy of God. Unfortunately, he saw the Lord's compassion as detrimental. How can that be? Jonah rebelled against God for this very reason. He told God this. I knew it. I knew that you are a gracious God. I knew you were merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness. And I knew it. When they repented of their sin, you would repent of your judgment. Isn't that amazing? Jonah wanted to see Nineveh judged, and God wanted to see them saved. Wow. Even despite knowing about God, Jonah didn't really know God. And because of his skewed vision of the Almighty, Jonah held out this horrible hope that the Lord would pour out judgment on the Assyrians. At the same time, the prophet knew another side of God. He knew the Lord could be forgiving. He knew it. 
but rather than embrace the mercy of God for fellow humanity. Jonah feared. Here's Jonah's fear. God, I told them you were going to destroy them. But if you save them, I'm going to look like a liar. He was more concerned about his reputation as a prophet than the salvation of a city. The Lord told Jonah to share this message of repentance, but he had no desire. (laughs) He was not picking up the phone whenever God was calling. Imagine being given the opportunity to preach one of the world's greatest revivals, and God promises, you preach, I will convict, they will repent, I will forgive. You couldn't ask for a better opportunity than that. All you have to do is preach what the Lord told you. He'll convict them. They'll repent. God will forgive. And we can all go to Wendy's and have a wonderful after-revival meal together. But instead of going and preaching to Nineveh, Jonah hopped on a ship and he sailed toward Tarshish. Now take a look on a map. Tarshish was 2,500 miles away from Nineveh. 2,500 miles. That would be like the Lord telling you to go and preach to the Pittsburgh Steelers fans up in Pittsburgh and you getting on a flight and flying to L.A. You're not even close. And yet Jonah fled in the opposite direction as far as he could possibly go simply because he did not want to preach to Nineveh. And the opening chapter of Jonah gives his downward journey. He went down to Joppa. He went down to the ship. He went down into the lower part of the ship. Eventually, he went down into the sea. He went down into the belly of a fish and headed deeper and deeper and deeper down. Jonah's life was going down. Yet in the middle of it all, Jonah knew that the Lord was with him in this watery version of hell. Jonah had gone down about as far as humanly possible. The height of his rebellion had taken him down to the bottoms of the mountains. And Jonah's plight brings to mind the words of the psalmist, If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Psalm 139, verse 8. Thankfully, the fleeing fugitive Jonah realized he could not escape the Lord. And in the belly of a fish, Jonah remembered the Lord. He remembered the God of mercy. He cried out in his prayer, Jonah promised to sacrifice unto the Lord with a voice of thanksgiving because Jonah recognized salvation only comes from the Lord. We need to recognize the same. We, too, must repent of our rebellion against God. Maybe we never intended to stray from the Lord, but we have. Or maybe we started out with lofty goals. We wanted God to use us and might have even hoped the Lord would reveal some kind of a prophetic word to us so he could work through us. Maybe we found ourselves fervently praying in a service for God to take us to higher heights and deeper depths. But then rebellion crept in, or maybe selfishness, or maybe a desire for glory, and we found ourselves descending to the wrong kind of depths, heading in the opposite direction of where God was leading. During those troubling times of our own making, we must seek the face of God. We must repent of our rebellion. We must recognize salvation only comes from the Lord. Another question. Why do you think God sometimes has to take extreme measures to encourage us to repent? Well, because of Jonah's repentance, God gave Jonah a second chance. He caused the great fish to spit out Jonah on dry land. However, when he got onto dry ground and wiped the sweat from his seaweed-soaked brow, his mission was still the same. Hey, Jonah, yes, Lord, I want you to preach to Nineveh. And this time... 
Jonah said, Yes, Lord. Jonah walked into the city of Nineveh still smelling like a fish. And nevertheless, he preached a message of repentance. He preached an eight-word message, at least in English, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight words. Forty days, Nineveh will be overthrown. You would think the Assyrians who were brutal and ruthless in the way they treated others, especially those from Israel, would have attacked him, judged him, imprisoned him, beat him, killed him. Instead, God had been working on their hearts, and Jonah did not know it yet. But God had been dealing with them. And the people proclaimed a fast, and everybody, even the the livestock, had to participate in this fast. The king himself put on sackcloth and ashes, trusting that maybe this God would turn from his judgment and save them. Now, here's an interesting tidbit. We don't know if this is true or not, so this is just possibly. We know that the god Dagon, who was half man, half fish, he was a Mesopotamian god from all the way back in 2400 BC or so. And we know that several civilizations lived in that area of Mesopotamia, including the Assyrians. And we know, based on monuments and archaeology, that this half-fish, half-man god Dagon was part of the pantheon of gods in Assyria. So let's just think about that for a moment. Jonah is swallowed by a fish. Jonah is spit up onto the beach by a fish, comes walking into Nineveh, smelling like a fish, and preaching judgment for Nineveh's sin. Could it be that the people thought maybe their god Dagon had sent Jonah to preach to them, and they believed because here comes this man out of a fish? Maybe. Maybe not. We don't know. But it's possible. And certainly, if that's what happened, well, God's able to do anything, use anything, to be able to bring people back to him. Jonah goes walking into Nineveh, preaches his message. They fall on their face. They repent. But no thumbs-up emojis from Reverend Jonah. He was mad. He wanted God to destroy them because of all the people they had destroyed. He went back to the outskirts of the city, built a little booth, started a little fire, got ready to roast marshmallows as soon as God rained down fire and brimstone. But fire never fell because God forgave them. But God did bless Jonah. He knew how hot the desert heat was, and he grew a gourd for Jonah. Some believe it was even around 10 feet tall, which gave him shade from the blazing sun. And Scripture records Jonah was exceedingly glad for the gourd. We love it when God does that for us. God blesses us even though we don't deserve it. So did Jonah. Exceedingly glad for the gourd, but keep reading. The next part of the story twists, reveals a part of the nature of God we don't love quite as much. Just one sunrise later, God dispatched a worm that started munching away on that shade tree until the gourd was gone and Jonah was wide open to the blazing sun without a shade tree or sunscreen. And Jonah was exceedingly sad the gourd was gone. Enter our Bible verse when the Lord has Jonah's undivided attention and asks him the question, Jonah, do you do right to be angry because of the gourd? And Jonah like a toddler, just pounded his fist and kicked his feet. And Jonah said, yes, I have every right to be angry. In fact, I have every right to want to die because you took the gourd away from me. And the Lord asked him, well, if you've had pity on a gourd that grew up in a night and perished in a night, why don't you care for people 
people created in my image, people I breathe the breath of life into, people I want to save, but they don't even know their right hand from their left. Jonah, they're not blessed like you are to have had the Torah, to have had the law. They don't know right from wrong, and I want to save them because I love them. The book of Jonah gives God the last word about the power of mercy. Here's a question. Why do we sometimes feel we have a right to be angry? And how can we overcome these feelings of anger? Now, all of us need to be very careful not to judge Jonah too harshly. If we lived in the city of Nineveh, if we heard about the city of Nineveh, we probably would have been a little hesitant too to go to Nineveh. And yet God still asks us to go against our human nature and even our desire for security and safety and reach out to people who need to hear the gospel. And we need to rejoice when God is merciful. Even if we feel like others deserve judgment, we don't know all the struggles they face. We don't know all they've been through, all they are going through. But all that really matters is the Lord loves them, he wants to save them, and perhaps we would be blessed enough that he would use us to preach the gospel that will do just that. Last question, who in your life needs mercy rather than judgment? All right, let's wrap this short story of Jonah up with another short story. This is from Saki. He wrote a short story called The Interlopers. It's one of the most famous short stories. It features two warring families engaged in generations of hatred over a small strip of land with good game. Ulrich von Gradwitz and George Zanaim. They currently contested the property, but the trouble began in the days of their grandfathers when a lawsuit gave the swath of land to the Gradwitz family. But the Zanames never stopped hunting on the land, and that feud continued, and there was no end in sight. The two men, Ulrich and George, hated each other with intense hatred, with the heat of a thousand suns. They hated one another. And on a night when the forest teemed with activity, Ulrich von Gradwitz guessed his enemy and his men had stirred up the animals. But... Ulrich was hunting another type of game. He was going to end this feud by ending his foe once and for all. George stepped around a large beech tree, and he sighted his enemy directly in front of him. The men hesitated to raise their weapons. It's one thing to detest somebody, but it's a whole other thing to kill. Before either man could make a fatal decision, a storm intervened. Crashing lightning struck the beech tree with limbs and debris falling on the enemies, leaving both of them incapacitated. Even in their weakened state, their personal vendettas refused to die. George spoke of justice, of Ulrich being trapped in his thieved territory. Ulrich seemed certain his men would find him, release him, and destroy the trapped poacher, his, his avowed archenemy. Fueled by their undying anger, they vowed to quarrel to the death. Ulrich briefly stopped berating his enemy and focused on freeing his own arm. And upon freeing himself, he drank from his canteen. Then in an act of unexpected mercy... Ulrich offered George the canteen if he threw it toward him, and George refused to take a drink from his enemy. Nevertheless, Ulrich continued his quest for peace. He told George that he would treat him as a guest on his hunting grounds. He would be hospitable to him. He spoke of burying the hatchet and becoming friends. And George discussed ending the feud and riding into town together to surprise everybody in the market square. He envisioned Ulrich hunting on his land. He wondered what would happen if neither encountered interlopers to continue feeding this fiery feud. George agreed to be Ulrich's friend. Both men began shouting together to draw their men to them. And after they had healed the relationship between each other, each hoped his men would arrive first to free the other. Finally, working together, 
they had achieved something. Ulrich saw nine or ten figures in the distance. George asked Ulrich who they were, and Ulrich gave a strange laugh. He answered somberly, Wolves. That short story teaches us it's never too late to mend a grudge, but if we put it off too long, there can still be some enormous consequences for delaying mercy and compassion. Like Jonah, like these feuding neighbors, let's seek peace while we still have the chance. If we have to choose, let's choose mercy. And let's pray for God to help us to love mercy. There's a beautiful passage in Micah that says, There are three things the Lord expects of us to do justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And let's also pray for God to give us wisdom, courage, grace to look at those who have wronged us through God's eyes and seek to see them saved rather than judged. Lord, you've been so merciful to us. You've been so good to us, abundantly good to us. You have, your mercy has overflowed in abundance to us. Help us to love mercy, not just receiving it, but sharing it. And help us not just to share it, but help us to rejoice when others who we thought should be judged are shown mercy. God, I pray today, help us, give us the wisdom, the courage we need to pray for mercy for our enemies, to look at them through your eyes, to see them saved rather than judged. I pray today, may we be men and women, students, young people, children, marked by mercy of receiving it, and offering it. I pray this today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much, God's Word for Life listeners. Be sure to subscribe, follow, like, share, and click the notify button so you will never miss an episode, and then share it with others so they never have to miss an episode of the God's Word for Life companion podcast either. I've got a couple of other great resources I would love for you to check out. All of those are at pentecostalpublishing.com, and you can buy books, Bible studies, Bibles, music, curriculum, all of that is available there at pentecostalpublishing.com. So if you're looking for something to teach, whether it's a small group, a Sunday school class, a midweek service, even something to preach, you can find that right there, pentecostalpublishing.com. And if you use promo code GWFL10, you'll save 10% off your entire order with the exception of curriculum. Everything else is 10% off with that promo code. One time use promo code GWFL10. Another podcast I would love for you to check out is called The Formed Podcast, and it's all about training teachers in the local church. And if you are a teacher, Sunday school teacher, Bible teacher, if you're a midweek teacher, you're a teacher in a small group, there's something in there for you. They're mostly interviews with others who are experts in their field, and they're sharing with us tips and techniques on how to teach children, youth, and adults. That's The Formed Podcast. It's available on Google, Apple, Spotify, and it's available on our Pentecostal Publishing YouTube channel. Look for the playlist, The Formed Podcast. The video version is there on YouTube. Next week, we continue our episodes on the faithfulness of God. We're going to take a look at a story called Standing Tall on His Knees. It's the story of Daniel. Looking forward to sharing that with you next week. And always look forward to learning and living out God's Word for Life. Thank you for listening to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast, where together we explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you are looking for other Bible study tools and resources to encourage you in your walk with God, visit us today at PentecostalPublishing.com.